Welcome to Economic Frontiers, the podcast where we interview leading economists about economics, innovation, and technology. Today, our guest is John Van Rienen, who is a professor of economics and the director for the Center for Economic Performance at the London School of Economics. We discuss several interesting topics, including how economists measure the quality of management, whether management affects productivity, and what explains the massive differences in productivity across various firms and across countries in general. Welcome to the show, John. Hi, how are you doing? I'd like to begin with talking about the role of management in economics. So a lot of managers are really interested in how to manage their company best, but traditionally this is not a topic that uh, economists have thought a lot about. So why have economists started studying this topic more recently? And there, I think the reason that uh, myself and a lot of other economists have got into this area is that um, as more and more big data has come along to let us look at hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of different firms around the world, a real big puzzle has emerged from analyzing that data. And that's the fact that you know, when you look at the productivity and, of, of these firms, there's these huge differences between the more productive and the less productive firms, the more successful and the less successful. And that's true even when you look in very narrow industries, you know, like uh, you know, ready mix concrete or you know, paper box production, where you think that competition should drive out the less productive firms very quickly. You actually see very big differences in productivity. So people like Chad Syverson of uh, the University of Chicago have shown that you know, in a typical US industry, very narrowly defined industry, the uh, top 10% of plants are about four times as productive as the uh, bottom 10% of plants. And even when you control for everything that we can kind of control for as economists, like how much capital is used, you know, what computers you're using, how skilled your workforce is, there still seems to be differences which are of the order of you know, two to one. So you know, the less productive plants seem to hang on in there, even though you think that you know, they, should, they should disappear pretty quickly. So that's a very interesting fact. So how would you link those differences to uh, management, or what are the other leading hypotheses for why these differences persist? Well, you know, when people first started seeing these differences, you know, we just thought, well, it's, it's just, we're not measuring things properly. So, we, you know, economists spend a lot of time obsessing about measurement. So we, we kind of find all these different ways of, you know, could it be we have got the prices wrong? Could it be that, you know, we're not measuring all of the different, you know, capital goods used? You know, maybe these happen for, you know, short periods of time, like a year, but they disappear. Turns out none of those stories seem to be true, that these productivity differences uh, differences of performance really are, are there in the data and they're persistent. So um, I think it's kind of shifted the way that people have, have thought about the problem. And I think now a lot of the new generation of, of people working in this area have said, well, you know, what it could be is just better and worse management. I mean, there is, you know, that's what the person on the street would say. Um, and economists you know, have always been a bit skeptical of that because of theory. But now, um, what we've been trying to do is to go out and get better measures of management. So, you know, to see whether or not it's true. Now, that's easier said than done. It's really hard to measure management. And that's another reason I think economists have kept away from the area because of the difficulty of actually trying to uh, you know, put some put quantities on what might be seem unquantifiable. So, uh, how do you go about measuring management yourself? And specifically, it seems like management not only something that is vertical, that there's good and bad management, but different situations call for different types of management. So how do you 
uh, differentiate between these two? No, that's absolutely right. I mean, a lot of types of management are very difficult to say whether one is good and the other is, is, is bad. So, for example, you know, think about, um, you know, should you price higher or lower? I mean, some industries you want to have a higher price, some industries you have a lower price. Should you do merger and acquisition? Who should you merge with? I mean, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. Uh, innovation, leadership, you know, there are, there are a lot of different domain, vertical, um, horizontal dimensions to that. What we did, um, and this is work with Nick Bloom at Stanford and Rafaela Sadan at Harvard, both former students of mine, we, we talked to a lot of people, a lot of people in industry, a lot of people in consultancy, to try and figure out what, what types of management practices, core management practices, do, we, do they think are likely to be stuff which leads to high productivity? What's the kind of stuff that you know, when a consultancy like Accenture or McKinsey go into a firm, what do they look for as key things uh, which could be looked at to raise, or raise productivity? So we developed this... Um, a scorecard of uh, kind of 18 different questions. And those questions go from, a lot of them are to do with how you collect and use data. So, you know, are you going out there to find out what's happening on the shop floor and what you're doing in production inventories? Are you using that information to try and set sensible targets? For example, are your targets like impossible to reach or too easy or low-balling them? Or are they, as they should be, kind of stretching? They're a mixture of long-term and short-term. Um, are you, you know, doing what you know, Toyota production system should be and you know, having continuous improvements, you know, using the manufacturing? And also, how are you managing your people? So, are, you know, one of the things we look at when we, uh, we, we, we interview firms are you know, what, how do you promote and pay people? You know, do, you take, do you really try and uh, get some idea about their effortability or do you just kind of ignore that and it's more about connections or simply how long you've been working at the firm for? You know, how do you deal with people who are underperforming? You know, do you, do you just do nothing, leave it alone, or do you actually try and you know, try and fix the problem? That might be improving training, skills, moving around, and if that's not working, how do you try and move those people out of the company? So those are those are what we think of. And a lot of this is not rocket science. It's kind of a lot of this kind of common sense. Um, and you know, we went and looked at these eighteen questions, and we. We then interviewed, um, first, first time we did this, we interviewed about 730 firms in four countries in the world. Now we've interviewed about 20,000 organizations or in about 34 countries in the world. And, um, you know, we kind of, we have, a, we have tricks that we use. <laughs> so we, uh, we, we position it as a kind of telephone interview. And the managers, who the kind of typical person we'd interview would be, say, like a plant manager. So not the CEOs are great to talk to, but they often don't know what's going on yeah. <laughs> on the shop floor. Um, so we have a typical, you know, in manufacturing, for example, we do a, a kind of factory manager, and we <coughs> talk about um, you know, all these those things. I said we don't tell them importantly that we're scoring them. We score these people in these eighteen questions from one to five, worst to best practice. But the manager we're interviewing uh, is not told that they're being scored. Yeah, so they're not trying to game the system. Exactly. So there's loads of psychological evidence that when you're interviewing people, um, you know, people will tend to try and give you the answers they think you want to hear. So you really want to try and avoid that if you want to get an accurate picture about what's going on. So, for example, there's loads of psychological evidence that you know, people take up small cues and use that. So 
for example, if you're asking people who you're going to vote for, you know, some researchers did a study where they dressed uh, one half the students up who were doing the interviews wearing suits and ties and short haircuts. And, you know, lo and behold, you got, like, you know, lots of people saying they're going to vote Republican. <laughs> then you sent, you know, the same students out, but this time dressed, you know, all scruffily, <laughs> you know, with jeans on and, you know, scraggly hair. And, you know, lo and behold, people said they're going to vote Democrat. <laughs> so a lot of the, these things can really matter a lot. So we, we call this double-blind type of thing. So the managers don't know they're being scored. The people who do the interviews themselves don't know um, the profits of the firm or things like that. So it kind of keeps it blind on both sides. And we have a lot of other kind of tricks that we use to try and get accurate responses out. Uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's, it's a really impressive project in the sense that it needs a lot of planning and a lot of uh, collaboration, not just between researchers, but also between all these people uh, that are making the calls. So it's kind of a, a part of, a, I think, a larger movement in economics to devise more ambitious uh, research projects. Yeah, I, I think research and economics has really changed <clears throat> in the last kind of 10, 15 years that it's become a lot more like the hard sciences in the sense you need to put together big teams of people to do projects. It's not the kind of lone scholar in the ivory tower thinking brilliant thoughts. It's actually getting a group of you know, people together with different skills and often using the large teams to do these type of interviews to collect your own data and analyze data. So it's more of a kind of lab-based model than, than it used to be. Yeah. So, all right, so you've got all this data now. Uh, you want to show that uh, management matters. So how do you go about doing that? So, you know, we've done this in a, a few different ways. I mean, <clears throat> one thing we do, which we didn't in the early, early research, is just to do the obvious thing and, you know, use our different measures to come up with different indicators of the quality of management and see whether that was correlated with things that um, economists and business people care about. So measures of productivity, of profitability, of market value, um, you know, whether the firms which we think are well managed are more likely to stay alive in the future or whether they exit. And you know, we, we found very strong evidence that the firms which you know, we measure, we say are well managed, other ones who perform well in all these measures, even when you control for a lot of different things. But the, of course, the, the problem, one of the problems with that is that you know, this is just a correlation. It doesn't mean there's a causal arrow from management to um, improved firm performance. You know, for example, maybe you know, firms who are getting lots of profits can employ lots of consultants who get the people to say the right things down the phone to us. Mm -hmm. um, so the, you know, the arrow of causality could go in the other direction. Now, you know, of course, if our measures were total you know, rubbish, total trash, there would be no relationship. So at least we can show that there's some, some yeah. in noise in, in our measures. But you know, causality is difficult to show. So that the kind of next wave of the research has often been around trying to establish causality. So, for example, you could look at changes over time. So, you know, is it the case when you had improvements in management in the past that led to an improvement of performance in the future? But more ambitiously, um, you know, what people have been doing is to actually run randomized control trials. So, out in India, for example, Nick Bloom led a, a, a team which tried, implemented some of our management practices in some textile plants uh, outside Mumbai. Um, we kind of did this with the World Bank, we marketed a program. People applied. We, you know, it was like a clinical trial. We put a group in the treatment group who, who got an intensive five months treatment. A group in the placebo uh, category who got like you know just a one month 
you know, low-intensity treatment just to get, say, enough data. And then we looked what happened to them over the next two years. And there were these huge impacts on the productivity of these firms. So we found, you know, the, the management practice improved, as you would hope from the intervention, but the productivity also improved by something like 20%. So, so and is that 20% estimate uh, consistent with the estimates you get just from the correlational study? Yeah, it was pretty much kind of consistent. So it was... Um, you know, it was in between the what we call cross-sectional estimates, where you just look at stuff at a snapshot of time, mm-hmm. and the panel data, where you look at how the changes of management affect changes of performance over time. So when you look at the cross-section, you get a, a big effect, like 15%. You look at the changes over time, it falls to 5%. And the randomized controlled trial evidence was in between at about 10%. So a standard deviation improvement on management score seemed to cause about a 10% improvement of, you know, of productivity, total factor productivity yeah. for the econ nerds out there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, I think that's an interesting finding because I think uh, the typical reaction from an economist might be that the reason that or that these Indian firms might have been doing worse is something that has to do with culture, and and this seems like pretty definitive evidence that it's not just that there's something different about India or these lower forming firms in India, it's, it is that uh, this management can make a difference. One thing that might occur, though, is that people that uh, certain employees might not like new forms of management. So did you actually observe uh, quitting behavior or change in the, in the workforce that's not directly caused by the changes in management firing these people, but by people quitting? That's a, it's a good question. I mean, there's certainly a lot of turnover. So... I mean, these and in India, of course, there's huge amounts of uh, of turnover in these in these in these different firms. Um, we found, I think, turnover went up a bit, but broadly speaking, and this is one of the interesting things: the the managers, for example, um, who implemented these changes, kind of stayed around. It, it wasn't simply that we were changing identity of the managers. Mm-hmm. More or less, it was like with the same kind of managers, you know, similar kind of workers, you could get a lot more productivity out of them just by working, working smarter. Uh, so I, I think part of it is, uh, you know, as you're saying, changes of the human capital mix. But uh, there's a big part of it, which is even with the same kind of group of people, you can get a lot more out of them, which is, which is kind of um, a positive message in a way, because it's not, if it was all selection, then you know, it's kind of tough. You just have to shift people in and out, which is kind of one way of getting productivity. But it seemed to be more than, more than simply that. It's, it was... Uh, it was actually working, working in different ways. I mean, a question we often get is, <clears throat> you know, the type of stuff we're looking at, the management we're looking at, you know, is, is it, it just makes workers miserable. So, you know, having the now, you know, the managers are now putting more effort into getting information on, on them, doing more appraisals, you know, making tougher judgments on their pay and, and whether they stay around or not based on their performance. Does this lead to, you know, workers just being unhappy? Um, and, you know, it turns out, so we also, in one of our surveys, we collected a lot of information on, you know, things like work-life balance. So, mm-hmm. you know, how long the workers worked, was the childcare, could you take time off if you had, you know, sick parents or, you know, if your kids weren't well. And across this kind of battery of, you know, you know measures of work-life balance, the firms we thought were better managed actually had better work-life balance practices. Oh, that's interesting. So, you know, it, it seems to be, that at least on those measures, worker well-being kind of increased as well as the productivity of, of, the, of the firms. And, you know, to me that makes a lot of sense because, 
you know, working in a kind of, you know, to use a technical term, crappy firm, <laughs> you know, where, every, you know, people are being promoted not because they're working hard, but just because they, you know, have a family connection with the, with the boss. Um, places which are kind of, kind of chaotically organized are actually not much fun for workers to work in either. Um, and I think, you know, if the, the place can be better organized, it can actually be place, a place which is good to work in as well. And certainly the kind of managers who seem to be able to implement the, you know, the tough productivity enhancing practices also seem to be doing things you know, which, were, which were good for workers too. Yeah. That, that's really interesting. Uh, one, one thing I'm curious about is how management transitions over the life cycle of the firm. Uh, just, uh, I, I personally read a lot about startups and uh, there's a lot of interesting management philosophies revolving uh, startups and uh, ideas such as how to scale your company, for example. Uh, Phil Libin of Evernote states that uh, every time your company uh, grows by a factor of three, you need to completely rethink how you manage the company. So uh, does your work, do you observe kind of changes with the size of the firm? And uh, do, you, do you kind of uh, have any theory as to what the optimal form of management should be as the firm is growing? That's, uh, yeah, it's a great question. So we, I mean, the kind of stuff that we're looking at um, isn't, I think, the kind of thing that you need to do when you first start up a firm. So, you know, this kind of more professional, systematic management, if you've got like one or two employees, it's, you know, it's not really relevant, right? So you haven't got to have some, you know, systematic appraisal system for people or monitoring system for people if there's only two or three people working. So for the early stage startups, it's not an issue. But I think what happens over time, and you know, there's a lot of case study evidence on this, is that when, when you get to a certain size, you can't just manage by walking around. Um, you know, and people argue what that size is. We, we tend to look at firms which are 50 and larger in our, in our surveys. And it seems to, to me, once you get to that kind of size, you have to start thinking about implementing some more systematic kind of management practices. And we, we find in our data, for example, that the larger firms typically have much more of you know, what we would call uh, you know, structured or good management practices than the, than the smaller firms. And this is one of the reasons that you know, as you get older and, and bigger, you need to do things which are more systematic. And that will differ across different industries and different sectors and so on. So. You know, we find certain types of the, our management practices, like people management around how you pay people, how you, uh, how, you, uh, how you try to get people to work for your firm, how you keep people. Those are much more important, say, in high-tech, high-human capital industries, mm -hmm. and much less important in places where, you know, it's basically about machines and cap you know, pure machines and capital. So you get these kind of differences, as well as differences in, in, in the life cycle. Um, Another, th another difference people often talk about, I, mean, I, I teach at Stanford Business School, and um, you know, we have all Silicon Valley types who come there, and you know, <coughs> a lot of them take our course, and they're kind of skeptical, because they say, wow, you know, this is not the kind of stuff which you know, Google does, or that Facebook does, it's much more freewheeling, and you know, this would stifle yeah, yeah. innovation. You know, and maybe there's, you know, I think there's an interesting question about whether that's true or not. You know, we've often thought that if you want to run an R&D lab, you also need to take account of you know, how people are performing and you know, how your outcomes are and so on. And when you look at places like Google, I mean, yeah, when they were really small, things were very chaotic and freewheeling. But you know, Eric Schmidt came in, they brought in a load of practices very much straight out of our kind of playbook. So they actually, you know, if, you, if you read uh, some of the books on, on Google, 
then a lot of them talk about how they have very uh, careful selection of employees. They set you know, very stretching targets for their employees. They measure them against the numbers obsessively. That's actually the kind of thing that we look at as well. Yeah. So, you know, what, again, it's a, there is a science-related component, but even in the, you know, what you might think is the more freewheeling Silicon Valley type of places, a lot of the people management stuff that we talk about turns out to be really important. Also, anecdotally, uh, I've heard it just corroborating that fact about Google is that they hire a lot of consultants themselves and a lot of ex-consultants. So at least the management within Google <laughs> uh, believes in, in, in similar techniques. Since we're already talking about Google, one thing that's interesting is um, as new technology comes in, the way you might want to organize a firm might, might change. And you've done some uh, uh, work on that. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so you know, one of the really interesting things at a kind of macroeconomic level has been you know, how productivity has evolved over time. And um, you know, one startling thing which happened in, you know, in the mid-1990s was this, uh, you know, this period of slow productivity growth in the U.S. economy kind of turned around. So you've got, a, you know, broadly speaking, of the decade after 1995, an acceleration of productivity growth. And people have looked at that, Eric Brynjolfsson, uh, of yeah. course, but many other people have suggested that this is kind of linked with the use of new technologies, particularly information and communication technologies. And if you look at the industries which really took off, a lot of them were intensive users of ICT. Now, some of them were producing the technology, like in a semiconductor industry, but yeah. they're not so big. But a lot of the sectors which were using the technology also do productivity increases. Now, interestingly, this productivity miracle, as it was called then, didn't happen in Europe. So productivity growth didn't go up in Europe. And people in Europe, especially, like myself, were really scratching their heads of, you know, what could you do about this? Um, and one story about, you know, why, you know, why there could be this difference is about management. So, you know, one of the stories is that U.S. Um, firms were much more flexible at changing the way that they operated um, when the new technologies became available. You know, the price of ICT you know, fell very dramatically, particularly after the mid-1990s. And U.S. firms you know, might have been able to use that much more effectively than European firms were. So we, we wanted to investigate this hypothesis. And you know, the way that we, we tried to do that was we, you know, we did it in a number of ways. One of the things we did, we said, well, let's look at U.S. Um, transplants in Europe. So if you looked at factories which were run by U.S. firms compared to European firms, when new technologies came along, how did the different uh, firms you know, use that? And it turned out the U.S. firms tended to use more new technologies, but more importantly, they, they were getting a lot more productivity out of the, the same amount of dollars spent. Huh. Um, so you know, we, we tried to think, well, you know, we, we, we saw this happening, and we said, well, you know, what, could, what could that be due to? And we found evidence that that was because that what the U.S. firms could do was they were transplanting not just the, you know, the hard technologies, but they were also transplanting their management technologies. So the U.S. firms were using some more of the you know, kind of more aggressive uh, people management techniques, rewarding people based on merit. They were more decentralized. They're more prepared to give power down to the front line. They're more flexible in their use of skilled workers. And this seemed to be very complementary. It seemed to give you an extra kick out of using your, your, your IT. And you know, we found that was very strong in the microdata, looking across seven different countries in Europe using our management data. 
Um, and you know, that seemed to account for a fair fraction, maybe up to half, of the faster productivity growth in, in, in the US and Europe over that period. Interesting. And, and is there any evidence that Europe has caught up? Uh, have these uh, management uh, techniques or has their IT usage of firms in Europe uh, caught up to that of the U.S. now that there's been more time since the start of the internet revolution? Well, you know, there has been diffusion. So there's certainly, you know, the, in terms of the use of ICT, that uh, has increased in, it's called, the, Europe has caught up some of the gap there. The management techniques have, have been somewhat, you know, come across to Europe at a different speed at different places. But the, pro the bigger problem is that what happened, of course, you know, a decade after the mid-90s was, you know, the Great Recession. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, every, you know, once 2000, once Lehman's fell, there was this enormous, uh, you know, dislocation of the world economy. So most um, countries' productivity growth slowed. Now, in the UK, for example, productivity actually collapsed and um, hasn't really recovered. So, you know, in the UK, productivity is about 14% below where we'd expect it to be in pre-crisis trends. And in most European countries, you also see a big productivity gap. The US has done relatively, I mean, people in the US are more obsessed about productivity because it has slowed a bit, but it has, the slowdown has been much more dramatic in, in, uh, in, in European countries than it has in the US. Now, to what extent is that IT? I think a lot of that is more to do with you know, what happened in the financial sector and how different policymakers responded to that and Europe responded with a lot more austerity than the United States did. So I think there's a lot of other issues which come into that. But yeah, that complicates the picture tremendously in terms of thinking about what's happened. Yeah, I think uh, especially outside of the economics profession, uh, a lot of people are very confused by slowing productivity growth because they see uh, technology uh, spreading even faster seemingly now than ever before and presumably it will make uh, people uh, more productive rather than less productive. So uh, a decrease in, uh, in productivity is, is actually puzzling. Well, I mean, it's, I mean and let's, 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 be, let's be careful here. It's like in the U.S., productivity hasn't decreased, yeah. but it hasn't grown as quickly as you know, people would have wanted to. It certainly wasn't, hasn't grown as quickly as it did in like the decade you know, leading up to the Great Recession. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I don't think it is a puzzle. I think the, you know, we see here in, in uh, Boston and Bay Area where I used to live incredible advances in robotics, information technology and software. Um, and yet, you know, this doesn't seem to be reflected in the productivity numbers. But you know, that's, you know, that, that puzzle has been there for a while. Um, you know, it was uh, you know, Robert Solo you know, who's famously quit, we see, Computers everywhere, apart from the productivity statistics, and then from 1995, you know, we finally saw the productivity <laughs> statistics, and then more recently, you know, it seems to have slowed down. Um, you know, there's lots of different possible explanations for that. My my feeling is that we probably mismeasure productivity. We're not fully taking into account a lot of the technological breakthroughs, but I also think some of it is to do with the huge shock of the Great Recession and the um, you know, the fact that many countries responded to that um, in the opposite way that, you know, we, we teach in macroeconomic textbooks, which is to expand demand and actually to contract demand, especially in, you know, Europe because of the constraints of the euro. So I think that has meant that, um, you know, we've had uh, you know, a big hit to our productivity in the financial sector still very much messed up in lots of European countries. 
So I think that we're still kind of groping our way out of what's happened there. I mean, a lot of people like Bob Gordon argue we're now in this new era of low productivity growth. My, I'm skeptical. I mean, my view is I'm more optimistic than, than Bob is. Um, I think if you look back in the you know, 1930s, people were saying exactly the same thing. They were saying, you know, technology has slowed down and productivity has permanently slowed down at secular stagnation, and then, you know, things switched around. Right. And I think it's a bit, it's kind of similar. It's intellectual pessimism more than anything else. But, you know, it is, it is true that the numbers don't look great at the moment, so. Yeah, it's definitely a, a puzzle to try to figure out. Uh, so uh, just uh, wrapping up with a, a few kind of uh, shorter questions. Uh, one question is, what do you view as the most exciting unanswered questions in, uh, in, in your field? Oh, the most exciting unanswered questions. Um, you know, I, 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 I do think, you know, going back to this idea of you know, productivity dispersion, that why, if you could improve your productivity, either by adopt, taking new technologies or doing magic practice, why are there so many firms not doing this? So let's say you buy into the argument that management is important for productivity. Why is it that so many firms are not doing what seems to be in their best interest? And I think that's, you know, for, you know it's a first order question. You know, is it information? So I don't know I'm bad, or is it I know I'm bad, I don't know what to do? Is it incentives that, you know, I just not enough competition? Or is it the collective action problem that, you know, I know what the right thing to do is, but as CEO, I have to bring a lot of other people with me. It's a sociological type of question. So I think that is a, that is a really exciting big picture question. Yeah, that is really interesting. And I, and I mean, uh, one, one way in which that might possibly uh, be changing over time is that information access is much easier now than, than it used to be. And I think uh, throughout the economy, we might think that these information problems about, well, what is the right, you know, what is the right thing that my firm should be doing, or what is the right thing that I should be doing as a person in my career, that information is much more available now than it was in the past. So presumably we should uh, see people making better decisions in the future, I think. That well, that's, I mean, that's an interesting, you know, it's kind of optimistic point that, you know, we certainly have a lot more information. Um, I, I guess, you know, if you, if you push back, you'd say, well, you know, it's not just information, it's also knowing what to do with that information. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we, we have huge stacks of, of data now, but actually understanding, you know, what that data is saying, what it means for me as an individual, because what's good for me, that may not be necessarily good for you. Um, and this is a big question. And also things, you know, have we also moved into it where things are changing very rapidly? And, you know, we're getting more information, but maybe what we have to do shifts much more quickly than it did in the past. There's a lot more uncertainty, there's a lot more volatility. And that would also cut against that. But I, I, do, I do think you're right. I mean, we are at a golden age of data and we're still groping our way through about how can we utilize that in a way to help people make, make better decisions. Yeah, I mean, and one interesting thing is that the government is getting involved in this. So the uh, US government has recently released these average uh, earning statistics uh, by colleges and it shows that certain colleges have uh, very terrible returns on investment. So presumably people will no longer be attending these colleges now that they have this information. Now, of course, maybe those people that were attending those colleges in the past, they were the type of people that are not motivated to uh, kind of get this information to begin with, and they're not gonna get it now as well. So it's, uh, I think that's also another interesting uh, question. In what cases do people make the effort to find 
relevant information? In what cases do they just uh, accept the status quo? No, absolutely. I mean, you want, I mean, you want also to help people to access that information and guide them through it because, you know, if all the, if 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 there's you know if the information is just used by people who are already you know pretty well informed, then it's just going to lead to you know the fact help it's going to help people who are more advantaged become more you know, even greater advantaged. So you think about school choice. If the only people who look at information on the quality of schools are kind of already wealthy parents and the people who it should you'd want it to help who you know are not looking at it then it's just going to exasperate differences i mean i i, I do think you know there is a, an important role for government and other um information aggregators here to try and get that information and present it in a way which is easier to use for people and get that get that out there and help them make decisions because i think you know really it, it it can be a way of creating more efficient markets than we have at the moment. Um, so it's an opportunity, but you know, if it's if it's if it's used badly, it can actually be a, a threat as well. Okay, excellent. Well, uh, thanks so much uh, for joining uh, me on the show, and um, uh, till next time. Yeah, it was a pleasure.